Well, good morning again, church. It is uh, good to be with you on uh, this day as we continue to enjoy this beautiful weather. I've been praying for rain and snow, but I've been enjoying this uh, great, great sunshine and blue sky and bluebird days uh, that we have been having. Now, if you're new to Cornerstone, uh, we are going to get to the Word of God in, in just a moment here, but I have kind of a, a silly tradition of, of sharing uh, things that I see in the backcountry. I spend a lot of time on my bike, and I'm often uh, telling my congregation, telling you about what? Bears that I see. So I haven't seen a bear in a few months, but would you like to hear what I saw on Friday? So Friday, I'm finishing. Uh, it's just about dark. Sun has set. Just a little bit of light left. And I'm riding my bike um, from the bottom of the canyon, heading back up to Auburn. And I'm moving very slowly and kind of looking around. And I'm looking off to my right at the Forest Hill Bridge. And I'm seeing some activity. Uh, not car activity, human activity. Under the bridge, on the catwalk. Some of you are familiar with this. I'll talk with you after the service if you've been out there on that catwalk. Um, and I saw a man jump. He had a parachute. Just as he cleared the bridge, he pulled his cord, a base jumper, very narrow window to not get your chute caught in the bridge and not to, you know, uh, get splatted in the river. So he pulls his cord, his chute comes out, and then he has a very delicate path to navigate the trees and the river and not hit those and to land in one spot of the trail that's pretty wide, wide enough for a fire truck and police cars uh, to greet you. <laughs> he uh, didn't have any rangers or sheriff cars there, and he very quickly uh, put his uh, parachute in his pack and, and uh, took off. So probably no one else saw that. Anyone else out? They, they, they do this, right? At uh, These guys come actually uh, not just from around here, but even from around the world to do that. And they do it right at uh, sunset there, and they try to coordinate so they don't have a meeting with authorities, and they, this guy didn't. But anyway, all right, so on to the Word of God here, I'm trying to get this thing connected. So I'm stalling here. I don't know what's... Do you guys have a good week this week? Maybe I'll uh, hand this to you or something. This happens occasionally. A little embarrassing, I'm connected to the Wi-Fi, but this thing isn't connecting. So what do you guys want to talk about? <laughs> I don't need a video. I mean, we can just skip this, but it, I'll be more confused myself, which means you'll be confused if I'm confused. I don't know if I can hand this thing to you and you can get it going. I'll get started in the sermon and then <laughs> we'll see what happens. Yeah. Those of you that are visiting, one of our values here is being real, not <laughs> pretending like we have everything together, because we don't, and that is actually part of what's at the beginning of the sermon here today. In fact, I want to begin this morning by reminding you, reminding myself, that uh, we do not have it all together. None of us have a perfect theology. None of us have life all figured out. And that is actually part of what Paul is trying to communicate to these few house churches in Rome in the first century. He's trying to communicate to them 
the reality, which has been obvious if you've been here the last few weeks or the last month, that these house churches in first century Rome, they don't have it all together, and yet it's okay. And he's wanting to encourage them specifically in that truth. And we see this in verse 14. So hopefully you have your Bibles open to Romans 15 and verse 14. We're going to begin uh, there. Paul says this. He says, I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. So this verse 14 is is important because the last few weeks, last few months or so, last month or more, we have seen these divisions within the household churches, the churches that met in homes in the first century. No buildings, no warehouses, no cathedrals. The church met originally in homes. And in those small house churches, there was a division in these congregations Paul describes these divisions as the weak and the strong. And we have already covered all of this. Some of them who were in the weak camp believed that we shouldn't eat meat as Christians, that we shouldn't drink wine, that certain days and certain festivals are to be celebrated. And then others said, no, we're really free to eat everything. We're free to drink. Every day is equal. And they had these divisions. But what they weren't divided on was on the gospel. And that justification is by faith, that salvation is by grace in what Christ did. They disagreed about how to live out the gospel, but they agreed on what the gospel was. And so as we heard a few weeks ago, the main thing is to keep the main things the main thing. And what Paul is saying in verse 14, he's, he's trying to encourage them, and instead, he, he, I, I'm trying to get inside Paul's head, and I think what he's thinking as he writes verse 14 is, I may have been harsh on them. They may think that I'm against them. He may think, they may think that I'm against them, that I'm, that I'm after them, but he says, no, I myself, and he uses really emphatic language here, I myself, the Apostle Paul, I'm the one saying this, I'm convinced You yourselves, who is he talking to? You small house churches in first century Rome. You're full of goodness. You're complete in knowledge. You're competent to instruct one another. In spite of these disagreements on on disputable matters, you are competent and complete in knowledge. So this is what he's getting at in verse 14. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says there, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I put this text on here, I could preach the whole sermon on this text, but I put this text up here to emphasize this not with words of human wisdom. We sometimes get down on ourselves because we think we don't have it all figured out. Well, we don't. But do you know the gospel? Do you know that Christ died for your sins? That really God became a man and he died on a cross some 2,000 years ago. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And he loves you and wants you to live your life for his glory. 
The church had divisions in Rome, but they agreed on that. And so we don't need today to bring this into 2022. It's not about us having this incredible knowledge or sophistication or human wisdom. In fact, if we think that's what it's all about, we actually empty the cross, the gospel of its power. The power is in the message of the gospel. Christ crucified for sinners and risen. It is not in our eloquence or our ability to think we've got it all together. So I just love the beginning of this, the encouraging word of verse 14. To them and by extension to us. Let's move on, verse 15. He says there, I have written you. Again, we need to think whenever we're here studying the Bible, we need to think about the original context and we need to think about today. So the original context, first century Rome, I have written you, first century Rome, quite boldly on some points. So this is why I think he's, he's, he's trying to you know, make sure that he wasn't too harsh with them. I have written to you quite boldly on some points, as if to remind you of them again, because of the grace God gave me. Now, most of Romans is about the gospel, and I think he's saying, yeah, I, I, I love you, and I know you get this, and I'm just reminding you of this because of the grace that God give, gave me. And then verse 16, and I want to draw quite a bit out of verse 16 in these next few verses. So look at the beginning of verse 16, uh, end of 15. Because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. So this is interesting. An uncommon word here, priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel. Paul is describing his activity as priestly activity. What, what, what is he getting at here? Well, the basic meaning of priest is a person authorized to perform uh, sacred rites or, or something special, especially as a mediating agent between humans and God. Paul is describing himself with this sort of language as having a priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel. And so a careful reader of this verse said, well, what, what is he getting at? Is Paul a priest? Well, depends how we define priest. One answer is yes. Paul is a priest. Well, what sort of priest is he? He is the sort of priest that proclaims the gospel in the way that he lives, by his actions, and he also proclaims the gospel by sharing the good news about Jesus, the Messiah who actually came, died for sins, and rose on the third day. That is his priestly function. Now, things, when it comes to the priesthood, have changed a lot. Look with me at Numbers 18. God is speaking here. And he says, I myself have selected your fellow Levites from among the Israelites as a gift to you, dedicated to Yahweh to do the work at the tent of meeting. But only you, only you and your sons, only those of the tribe of Levite may serve as priests in connection with everything at the altar and inside the curtain. We're going to come back to that curtain a little bit later in the sermon. I am giving you the service of the priesthood as a gift. Anyone else who comes near the sanctuary 
must be put to death. Whoa, sorry about that air there. That's kind of a big deal, isn't it? I mean, does God care that the priests are from the tribe of Levi, according to Numbers 18, church? He does. <laughs> well, does he really? Well, yeah, if someone else comes near inside that curtain, he's killed. Things changed with the coming of Jesus. The duty of a priest has changed. And who is a priest has dramatically changed. One commentator, Charles Hodge, writes this. He says, Paul no more calls himself a priest in the strict sense of the term, in the Levitical sense of the term, than he calls the Gentiles a sacrifice in the literal meaning of that word. The Gentiles, we're going to read about them being sacrificed in just a moment. We're not talking about human sacrifice or animal sacrifice, nor are we talking about a priest being of a certain pedigree or of a certain family or of having a certain degree or of a certain connection going back successively century after century after century. That is not the New Testament idea of what a priest is or what a priest's duty is. 1 Peter 2.5, you also, Christians, like living stones. That's quite a phrase there. Now, to you and me, you might be like living stones. So the imagery here is of a great building, of a temple where God would reside. Believers in Jesus are described as living stones, as a temple where the Spirit dwells. And they are being built into a spiritual house. You and I, as a church, the other churches in Auburn and around the world, in Ukraine, in Mexico, in Canada, they are in the process of being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. With the coming of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, there are radical changes between the old covenant and the new covenant. There are some things that say the same, but there's some things that change radically, and the priesthood is one of them. Look at Revelation 1 with me. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us Christians, Christ followers, to be a kingdom. We are a kingdom. We, a kingdom is a place where, where there's a king, and he reigns. He, he's the absolute monarch. He's, he's Lord. He has laws. And we have a good king. He has made us to be a kingdom, and he's made us priests to serve God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. If you haven't heard it quite directly yet, what I'm trying to say this morning out of verse 16 is that when the Apostle Paul describes himself as having this priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel, this is a priestly duty that is shared with every single one of us. Because every believer is a priest. I have a friend, some of you know him, his name is Neil. He constantly refers to Christians, not as Christians, not as Christ followers, not as believers. We have all these different terms. He refers to us as believer priests. 
That's what he always says. I can't preach the sermon without hearing Neil in my head. Because I don't know anyone else that just constantly says that. So you're always like, what, what? Believer priest. Believer priest. We do not have to go to a temple. We do not have to go through these special designated people. That was for a season in the Old Covenant how God had set things up. But in the New Covenant, priests deliver the gospel. And when people repent and believe, they have direct access to the Father through Jesus. We are living stones. We are a priesthood. And so we have a responsibility here to join Paul in living out the gospel, showing the truths of the gospel, the themes of the gospel, the themes like hope, resurrection, hope, themes of repentance, themes like love, themes like enduring suffering for the glory of God. We live these things out, and then we are priests when we also communicate that gospel to those who need so desperately this gospel. So you are a priest. I said we would come back to this curtain. There was a curtain to make it really clear in the temple where normal people are not to go if they are not a priest. Now if we go to Matthew 27, look with, look with me on the screen at it. Jesus is on the cross in Matthew 27. And when he had cried out again, in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. It is a profound way to say that he died. But it's profound because it's telling us that he was sovereign over his own death. He didn't die passively like you and I are going to die. He died actively. He loved us so much he gave up his spirit on the cross. And at that very moment, what happened? At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. It was a divine tear. God tore it, indicating that things are changing. There is a new covenant, and we will no longer all travel to Jerusalem to worship, but we will worship him in spirit and in truth. We will worship him in gatherings among every people on the planet. We will worship him in our cars. We will worship him at home. We will worship him everywhere. The earth shook and the rocks split. This always just hits me when I think of this verse. One of the, the reasons that it hits me is that in literature other than Scripture, we read about this in Scripture, of course, in the Gospels, but other people in Jerusalem saw this curtain tear, and they saw these things happen. So other non-believing people wrote about this incredible incident. And you can read about this in extra-biblical literature, which if you're a skeptic here today and you're not sure if this God who became man and actually died and rose again, it actually happened, it might be helpful to you to read what others wrote about this curtain tearing because people saw it happen. No video back in that day, so we don't have video of it, but we've got attestation to it in writings. You are a priest it's a good thing. Every one of us is a believer priest, and we are ministers of the gospel. And we exercise our priestly duty when we live out the gospel and we proclaim the gospel of God. That's what Paul is describing 
in verse 16. Let's come back to our text here. We're still in the middle of verse 16. He says there, um, he continues on in verse 16. Let me just read the whole thing. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Paul, who was a Jew, had this, this passion and this calling to go to those who were not Jewish, to the Gentiles. And he's viewing their lives as offerings. This is, this is metaphor. This isn't literal animal sacrifice like what we had in the Old Covenant where families would travel to Jerusalem. You traveled here today, most of you, I think by car, nobody on bike or, or walking today. I used to pastor in Cool, and on a rare occasion we'd have people bring their horses, ride a horse to church. It wasn't a typical thing. It's just kind of like, you know, something that you do to be cool if you live in Cool, ride your horse to church. They would travel in Jerusalem and families would bring these offerings to the temple. But what Paul is envisioning here is his life as a believer priest, as he takes the gospel and communicates it with people who are not Jewish, and they become Christians, that their entire lives are offerings. What a beautiful picture, and what a joy it would bring to Paul. This is bringing back or connecting with what Paul says in Romans 12.1, a passage many of you are familiar with where he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, brothers and sisters in Christ, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You know, I think most of us don't believe that we only worship on Sunday mornings, but some of us kind of maybe believe that. And, and I just want to, to declare very clearly that this is not... This is just one place where we worship, right? It is the totality of my life that God is after. He is after my, my work, that I work for the glory of God, that my work is worship, that my play is worship, that my entertainment is worship, that my sleep is worship. Our our offerings in the new covenant are our entire lives. So what I'm trying to say here is that we are not only priests, but we are offerings, you and I. And he wants all of you. This is where preaching gets difficult. I don't know if there are areas of your life that you kind of segregate, probably unintentionally, and kind of step out of living for Jesus. Now, we obviously can't be thinking about him consciously all the time. We don't have any brain surgeons in here, right? But if we had a brain surgeon working on our brain, we want him, like, working on the brain, right? We don't want him, like, reading his Bible or praying. We want him doing his task. But as he goes into the OR, as a believer priest... He knows that he is using the skills and the gifts and the talents that God has given him to glorify God. So it doesn't mean that we're consciously always thinking of him, but that our entire lives are an offering. You know, some years ago, it, it, I, I had never really thought of my sleep being something I need to submit to God, to worship God in my sleep. After all, I'm asleep. I'm not conscious. How do I 
how do I do that? How do I, how do I be, be an offering while I'm sleeping? And there's a little book that, uh, other than the Bible, that I've used over the years. Different seasons, I've used it more and less. It's a collection of prayers. Some of you have used it. It's called the Valley of Vision. And one of the main values for me in learning uh, in using this book is learning how to pray. And one of the prayers in this book was a prayer all about sleep. The first time I read it, I thought, that's, that's kind of weird. And then I realized, no, I, I'm the one who's kind of off. This is, this is we, we spend, you know, six, seven, eight hours a night. Some of our teenagers, 10, 11, 12, 13 hours a night. Some of them still at home sleeping this morning. This is something we need to offer to God. And so it taught me how to pray over even my sleep. Part of the prayer in that book goes like this. Blessed creator, thou hast promised thy beloved sleep. Give me restoring rest needful for tomorrow's toil. If dreams be mine, let them not be tinged with evil. Help me when my mind is harassed by foreboding thoughts. My wife and I, as we were in bed last night, prayed this prayer last night. We prayed that last line. I modified the slide this morning to get that line in there because it's from a different paragraph. Because my mind has been harassed by foreboding thoughts. Those are thoughts that something bad is really going to happen to me. Whether I'm sleeping or I'm awake or in between, you know what I'm talking about? You ever have those, sleeps, those times in bed where you're, you're kind of asleep but you're kind of awake? And, and, and maybe the enemy is, is working there and you are harassed by foreboding thoughts. Help me. So we pray this before we go to sleep. You're a priest. You're an offering. And God wants the totality of your life to be his. All right, let's come back to our text here. We're in verse 17, and, and we're going to go through about verse 22. One more major point to draw out of the remainder of this text. Verse 17, Paul says, Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God. Then he mentions these three things. By what I have said and done, so we ought to be looking at what we say and what we do. Our lives should be examples of the gospel. Number two, by the power of signs and miracles. There were all sorts of signs and miracles that authenticated Paul as an apostle designated by Jesus to reach the Gentiles, Acts 9, and Israel, it says. But he puts Gentiles first, and that's mostly where Paul went. Now, so we could pe- preach a whole other sermon on this phrase. So the question, of course, comes up, does God do signs and miracles today? I believe the Bible teaches he does. Does he do them in the same degree, in the same capacity that he's done in different pe- periods of what we call salvation history? No. There are periods of time... If, we, if you study the Bible comprehensively from Genesis to Revelation, you will find there are periods of time where miracles are concentrated as God is authenticating something, when he, especially when he's about to do something new. So miracles 
are possible and God can do them in your life, in my life. I'm talking about things like the dead being raised. I'm talking about things like the paralytic being drawn, uh, dropped down into a, a room like this from the roof and someone who's never walked getting up and walking. Can God do these things today? Yes. Does he commonly do these things today? He does not. But he can do them. He did them. By the power of signs and miracles is the second thing Paul mentions. Third, the power of the Spirit. This is what Paul is pointing to. Not to his own eloquence, not to his own stuff, not that he has it all together, but to what God has done. So here's here's where I want to go and, and spend the rest of our time, these next few verses. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. And I've got that circled, and this is huge. Where Christ was not known. And what's huge is why. Why has it always been his ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known? meaning there are no Christians in this community. There are no churches in this community. So that I would not be building on someone else's foundation, rather, as it is written, and then he quotes Isaiah, prophesying about this, those who were not told about him will see, prophesying about a time where people will believe in the Messiah where they, they didn't know about him. Those who, were told, not told, those who were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. Then the last verse we're going to look at today, 22 He says, this is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. Coming to you, Roman congregation, the imperial city, the most important city in the world in the first century. Why hasn't Paul gone to Rome? He hasn't gone to Rome because Paul's heart is to go where Christ was not known. And there are several house churches in Rome. Paul has never been there. And so he's kind of explaining to them throughout this whole unit that I love you, I know you don't have it all together, but you know the gospel, you're competent to encourage one another, and here's why I haven't been there. Because the gospel is already spreading in Rome, and his heart is to go where Christ has not been known. So the last last few minutes we have here, what I I want to do is, is answer the question, why does Paul want to go where Christ was not known? And I want to suggest that there is a major reason for this that has implications for your life and my life. And it's essentially Jesus' last words before, after the resurrection, before he ascends to the Father. And you're familiar with these words, and many of you may be familiar with everything I'm going to say, but for some of you, I think what I'm about to say is going to be fresh, even though you are familiar with this mission that Jesus gave us, this great commission. Before he ascended, he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. If you have been around the church a long time, you are so familiar with this, you probably could recite this verse from memory, you could paraphrase it, you could talk about it. You might be able to say how the main verb here is to make disciples. That the going modifies that. The main thing here is to make disciples. But I think sometimes we miss a very important phrase here that is related to why Paul says he 
has this ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. And it's these couple little words, all nations. All nations. It's three words in Greek, panta ta ethne. You can hear an English word, part of an English word in that word ethne. Ethnicity, ethnic. And so nations, when we read nations in the scriptures here, we should not be thinking United States, Canada, Mexico, Honduras, Ukraine, Russia. We should be thinking something different than that. We should be thinking something much more specific than all nations. In other words, it's not just get the gospel to the United States. So what does this mean? Well, this word is used a couple different ways in the New Testament, this word that's translated nations. The way that it's most commonly used is a people group's foreign to a specific people group. That's how it's used just up in verse 16. The word, it's often translated Gentiles because it is referring to people groups foreign to Israel. Am I getting too nerdy here? You guys tracking with me? So the way this word is often used is referring to not God's chosen people, Israel, but to everyone else, the Gentiles, non-Jews. That's one way this word is used. The other way this word is used is a body of persons united by kinship, culture, and common traditions, especially language. That's the way that it's being used here. So what does this mean? This means that the last thing that Jesus said before he ascended to heaven was not just go and make disciples however you want to. He's saying, I want you to go to the specific people groups, the specific ethne, where there are no Christians and no churches. That's the mission that he gave us. So that's why Paul is saying, yeah, I haven't gotten to Rome yet. Because my ambition is to preach the gospel where Christ was not known. If those of you that are starting to sweat, we're not going to have an altar call, and I'm not saying everybody needs to go to North Africa in the Middle East. Okay? Some of you might be thinking that. But there are implications to this great commission about reaching every single people group with the gospel. If we don't understand that commission, if we don't understand what he was saying by the nations, we're not really obeying or understanding the Great Commission. Jesus designated the churchless people groups of the worlds of the world as the missional priority. That doesn't mean that every one of us needs to leave. It does mean that every one of us needs to play a part in this mission of taking the gospel to the nations or to every people group. So I want you to be thinking about what your part might be. And so in large part, the latter part of this sermon is about awareness. What I've been praying over, what, what way God has led me through this sermon is that you and I would have an awareness. For some of us, maybe it's a new awareness that, oh, God actually has a missional priority, and that priority is to the nations, that is, to the people where Christ is not known. There are no Christians and no churches. You're born, you live your life, 
to 70 or 80 years old in many communities around this world, many cultures around this world, many places in this world, and you have never heard of Jesus, you have never heard the gospel, there's no churches that you've driven by, they don't exist. The Great Commission is making that a priority. I read an interesting quote this week in my reading from JFK. He was, uh, it was 1960, and a journalist named Hugh City was asking him, he was a senator at that time, candidate for the presidency, um, but sitting senator. He was asked by this journalist, what do you remember about the Depression? And part of the reason this quote was so compelling is, as you're going to see, he's just brutally honest. Do we need some honesty in our politicians? I mean, he's brutally honest. So JFK, during the Great Depression, if I did my math right, he was like 12 to 22. And you've seen the pictures, you've studied this. Our, our, our land was like a developing country, people living in boxes, people starving. There's no work. So what do you remember about the Depression, JFK? Here's his answer. I have no firsthand knowledge of the Depression. My family had one of the great fortunes of the world, and it was worth more than ever then. We had bigger houses, more servants. We traveled more. About the only thing that I saw directly was when my father hired some extra gardeners just to give them a job so they could eat. I really did not learn about the Depression until I read about it at Harvard. That's honest. He was sheltered. He was unaware. I'm afraid that many of us are sheltered and unaware of the eternal destiny of the lost and the mission that Jesus has given us to take the gospel, the priority, to places where there are no Christians and no churches. That's why Paul, people have described this the greatest letter ever written to at the time the greatest city on the planet, why he's never been there. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. Because Paul has embraced in a very real way. Again, I'm not saying you need to go to these places. I'm saying that we need to be a part of this priority and understand that priority. Maybe some of you do need to go to those places, but that's not primarily what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say today is that we need to have an awareness of these places where there are no Christians and no churches. This is the designated priority. Let me try and land this plane quickly here. Um, we have some missionaries in Papua New Guinea. And so, let's see, did I bring that thing up here? I was going to use my pointer today. Did I leave it over there? I'm just all over the place today. Can't get the iPad to work. 
I use this thing like once a year and I left it back there. So I'm going to use this little pointer. So Papua New Guinea, um, down here, Papua New Guinea, almost 9 million people. But look at this. People groups, ethne, 884 different languages or people groups on that little island. 884 different groups of people. Some of which have no Christians and no church. USA, look at this, 507. We have a few more people, 330 million, 507 people groups, 507 ethne. This, is, this number is here because of the Great Commission. This number is here because of the Great Commission. We have missionaries in front of us in the U.S., me and you. We have missionaries in Papua New Guinea. We have missionaries in Jordan. I was communicating with one of them this morning where there are only 20 people groups in this country of 10 million. We have missionaries. When I say we, I mean Cornerstone. I mean we financially support because of the Great Commission. I'm wanting to also celebrate what we are doing. I hope for many of you, you're aware of what I've been saying. And so for some of us, this is just celebrating what's going on. We have missionaries in the Czech Republic. Ten and a half million people, 38 people groups in that country. We have been given a mission. And that mission is not just open-ended. This, um, all of these stats, if you're a stat person or a computer person, you could go to this website and you can understand some of these numbers more by going there. But the last numbers I want to mention is these numbers at the top, 34, 87, 134, 148. So this organization has prioritized countries and how desperate the people groups are that have no churches, no Christians in them. In other words, it's very common to live your entire life and you have never heard anything about Jesus or met a Christian. And the number one country on that list, number one, the one who is most desperate for the gospel to go and for Christians to be made, where Paul would be heading. This is why I have often been hindered from coming you to Rome. Number one country, according to the people who put this stats together, is Afghanistan. That wasn't that surprising to me. I was surprised what was on the other end of the Spectrum, 177. Anybody guess? A country? Throw one out here. Finland. I don't know. So go to the thing. I, 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 I haven't been to Finland, but I was just surprised. that Finland is number 177. In other words, as far as penetration of the gospel to people groups, Finland is the, is the one needing it the least. In other words, Christians are reproducing there into people groups the most, and Afghanistan is the place that needs it the most. I'm trying to, did I say it backwards? You guys tracking with me here. The gospel needs to go around the world to these places. So after his ascension, to try and bring this to a close, you are a priest, you are an offering, you're part of frontier church planting as you give. We send money to the folks who are out here 
we talk with them, we pray with them. Maybe some of you are to go to some of these places. Most of us are not. Most of us would be back here very soon. I was reading this morning about missionaries, American missionaries in the Ukraine, who are staying in the Ukraine, knowing what might happen very soon. But they're there. They're there because they want the gospel to spread among the people groups in Ukraine. They're there because they want disciples to grow up in their churches there. We need to pray for the church in Ukraine and in Russia. But the thing I want to leave us with today is, is the question mark, how are you, how am I to be a part of this great commission, specifically going to the nations? Yes, we need to share the gospel here, but we also, to be obedient to the Great Commission, need to be thoughtful about those nations, all the people groups that have no churches and no Christians. Let's bow our heads and pray. Ask God to help us to respond to this text. Father in heaven, we're thankful that we do not have to travel to Jerusalem to worship you that we are all believer priests, that our entire lives are offering. Lord, help us to be mindful of our work, of our play, of our entertainment, of our sleep. And Lord, help us to be mindful today and aware of our responsibility to partner with those who we have sent out along with other churches to Papua New Guinea and the Czech Republic into the Middle East, and so many other places. Lord, help us to be mindful, prayerful, and thoughtful to respond to this in whatever ways you would have us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.